Well, uh, I'm back, and uh, so we're back in the book of Amos. So if you have your Bibles, we'll turn to the book of Amos. Amos, to kind of review a little bit here, is a condensed version of biblical justice. We see these uh, forms of um, justice mentioned or sprinkled throughout Scripture, but Amos kind of condenses a lot of this into one book. He speaks out on behalf of the oppressed. He speaks out against the injustice within our society. And he speaks out against the strong abusing the weak. And he sees and speaks out against the inhumanity of man against his fellow man. As Christians, we should uh, be as bold as Amos. We should be standing firm upon the scripture and using the example of Christ to speak out against this injustice in our own society, wherever we find it. So he's a good example for, for what we should be doing as well. As I stated earlier uh, in some of the lessons earlier on uh, in the book of Amos, this book is divided into sections. And perhaps they were separate sermons that Amos preached in Bethel. And if that's the case, then we see a new sermon open up before us beginning in chapter 3. So that's where we're going to pick up today, is in chapter 3. Again, to review, the, the first two chapters that we looked at was a sermon that contained judgments on Israel's neighbors. And I said it was kind of like a funnel. He started off broadly with the neighbors, and he finally funnels down to Judah and Israel and um, passes judgment on them as well. The main theme of this sermon in the first two chapters was basically that heathen nations had no special exemption from God's judgment. Just because they didn't have the law, they weren't exempt from it. And we saw that uh, God judged them uh, based on what was written on the hearts of all men, the way they treated each other. And he judged them because God is sovereign over all nations, not just the ones that he's chosen. He is the creator of all people. And he has the power to raise up governments, and he has the power to take governments down. So that was part of the first lesson in those first two chapters. The second part of that lesson is that Israel, in fact, all of God's people, has no special position to avoid judgment. Their sin is an affront to the holy God. So on the one hand, you had the heathen nations who were responsible and God would judge them. 
On the other hand, you've got God's chosen people, and he will judge their sins as well. So that was kind of a summary of, of what we saw in the first two chapters. The sermon that begins in chapter 3 picks up at that point. It is showing not only that Israel has no special position on the basis of which she can sin without impunity, but she actually has a higher obligation of holiness. She has this higher obligation of holiness because of God's dealing with Israel, because of God's love for Israel, and because of God's mercy towards Israel. And therefore, Israel and God's people will be judged more severely for the rebellion against God's law. So just a word of application here to ourselves. We have the complete revealed world, word of God here before us. And we have no excuse like the pagan nations we will be judged as to how we lived up to God's standard. And those who have faith in Christ will be sheltered by him, but that does not mean God's people will not suffer tribulation. That does not mean that God's people will not suffer hardship and even death. But our souls will be preserved for all eternity, if our faith is in Jesus Christ. So we have a great love that we have received, not of our anything that we have that is lovely, but only through the mercy and grace of God. And therefore, we have a great obligation. We have a great obligation to share this gospel of love and of salvation. And we will be judged as to how we've done that. This whole concept is called a point of privilege implying responsibility. A point of privilege implying responsibility. We are God's people, we've been chosen, and we have a greater responsibility. This concept of privilege and responsibility um, was used by Shakespeare in a couple of his plays. And I'm sure the name William Shakespeare kind of sends a shudder through your heart, <laughs> either if you are a past student or a present student. I guess you can get a degree in English literature in some of the major schools today without ever reading William Shakespeare, which is amazing to me. But Shakespeare uses this concept, point of privilege implies responsibility, in two of his historical plays, um, Richard II and uh, Henry V. In the first play, we see the career of Richard II, who began his reign with great privilege and great opportunity. However, Richard is rash, and he's erratic in his behavior. 
He does not administer justice properly. And as a result, his reign and his life goes downhill. And he dies at the end of the play. Henry's life, on the other hand, heads in the opposite direction. In his youth, the prince is lewd and depraved. Um, He spends most of his time in the medieval mall with his friend John Falstaff. And they have nothing better to do than to curse and carouse. But when his father, the king, dies, Henry changes his goals and begins to live in a manner expected of leaders. Down deep, he knows he did, not, he did nothing to merit being a king. At one point, he speaks to his dying father about the crown of England. Quote, You won it. You wore it kept it, and now gave it to me. But having become king through no achievement of his own, he now nevertheless determines to live in a manner worthy of that status. Henry says, The tide of blood in me hath proudly flowed in vanity till now. Now doth it turn to ebb back to the sea where it shall mingle with the state of floods and flow henceforth in formal majesty. End of quote. So what kind of parallel do we see with Shakespeare's Henry and what Amos' word to Israel? Any parallels you see here? Israel was selected by God through no value of his own. Henry became king through no achievement of his own. It only happened through the love and mercy of God that Israel was selected and therefore has certain responsibility to live up to that calling. How does this apply to Christians today? Any thoughts? Yeah. Yes. Which means we have a greater responsibility because we have received the salvation through no merit of our own. In chapter 3 of Amos, if you're there, he begins in in verse 1 and 2 with a summary statement. He says, Hear this word, people of Israel, The word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. 
These verses contain three truths about Israel and one conclusion about their coming judgment. The first truth, Israel is God's chosen people. Israel is God's chosen people. The very name Israel implies this, for it is a covenant name. We find this in Genesis 35.10 and verse 12 as well. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. The land I have gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I'll give you this land to your descendants after you. Amos 3.2 says the same thing. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. So Israel traces its ancestry back to Abraham. We know that Abraham had nothing good within himself that God should look favorably upon him, to select him, to love him. God did not look down from heaven to find a man who had a little bit of faith, a little bit of spiritual understanding. He's all good. Here's somebody I can use. I can stir up that flame within him, and, and he might become a chosen people. No. No, it was just the opposite. Abraham was a pagan, living in a country full of pagans. Left to himself, he would have not continued to worship. He would, have left, he would have been left to continue worshiping pagan gods and living in pagan ways. He would have died a pagan, ignorant of the one true living God. But God didn't leave to, him, to himself. God revealed himself to Abraham, calling him out of darkness into the light of God. Abraham became God's chosen person. In the next generation, we see God fulfilling his covenant promise. It was not done by anything Abraham or Sarah were able to do, but God moving in to intervene into their life. Abraham and Sarah were past the age of conceiving children and raising children, bearing children. Abraham had to believe that God would give him an heir, and he did. But it took a miracle to do so. Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old. Again, we see the idea of God's electing power. Brother Bill's been going through the, um, the, the uh, grace uh, doctrines of grace, and he's covered electing power very well. And we see that in the next generation. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, had twins, and Esau and Jacob. But God intervened and elected or chose one and not the other. Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. In other words, the case of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we have denials that the election of Israel was based on anything these men had or possessed. And we have a declaration here 
that was due totally to the free pleasure of God that they were chosen. Abraham shows that the election is not by merit. Isaac shows that it is not by physical strength. And Jacob shows that it is not even by inheritance. It's by grace alone. Grace demands accountability. So the point of privilege requires a great responsibility. The second truth found in these first two verses is that Israel had been delivered from bondage in Egypt. In this case, the matter moves from election to redemption. Not only did God choose Israel on the basis of grace alone, he also redeemed the nation in the same way. There was nothing special in them that he should save them. Apart from the grace of God and his power displayed through the ages of Moses, the people of Israel would still be in Egypt today. But God, out of love and mercy, sent Moses and worked through him to deliver his people. The third truth that we found in these first two verses is that this election and redemption were unique to Israel among all the families of the earth. As most of you know, we believe in the doctrine of common grace. Uh, Each nation exists by God's favor and is blessed with life and food and health limited success as a unique creation of his uh, earthly uh, domain. But the favor uh, spoken in these verses is not universal. It was not true of Egypt. It was not true of Syria. It was not true of Edom. It was only true of Israel. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. But as a result, nothing could demand a higher level of accountability than being chosen by God. They were held accountable at a higher standard. There is a classic summary uh, of this statement and principle in Deuteronomy. Turn over to Deuteronomy, if you will. And we're looking at chapter 7. The passage discusses election and makes it the point of the election is really of grace. Deuteronomy 7 and verses 7 through 15. Dale, could you read that?
Ethan, would you turn over to chapter 8 and read verses 19 and 20? So on the one hand, we see that God, out of his love, mercy, and grace, has chosen Israel. He will bless Israel as long as they continue to uh, follow his laws and his commandments. But then we see that if they don't, judgment will come. It's funny how we sometimes have selective hearing people of Israel heard the first part that they were going to be blessed because they were the chosen people. They didn't hear the second part that said, I will destroy you if you turn away to other gods. So they have a, a privilege. They've been chosen by God. They have a greater responsibility to live up to God's laws. All of God's people whether they're chosen in the days of Israel or chosen uh, today as Christians, have that point of privilege and responsibility. So (laughs) this is the message Amos is bringing to the people. You didn't hear verses uh, 18 and, or 19 and 20 there. You did not live up to the responsibility as God's people, obeying his commands. Therefore, I, God, will punish you for all your sins. That's verse 2, chapter 3 in Amos. Because they have sinned, they will be destroyed just as the nations were that God destroyed at the time of Israel's conquest of the promised land. Again, we can use the scripture, the Bible, as a mirror. Just as Israel was chosen by grace, so we have been chosen. If we truly are believers in Christ, that is, and just as Israel had been deemed so, redeemed, so have we been redeemed. Therefore, much is required of us. If we do not follow in God's ways, worshiping him only, obeying his holy and just commands, judgment will fall upon us too. Many people say it's already here because we have sinned and rejected God's commands. Many people in the church today would not like to hear that, that we could be judged by God. Many people would say, well, we have a privilege here. Our position, God has must deal differently with us because we have been chosen. We are his people. Therefore, we fall under different requirements. And I'm sure the people in the days of Amos said the same thing. They hear Amos preaching judgment on them and they say, wait a second, we're we're sons of Abraham. We've been chosen by God. 
But we know later in Judah, the people rejected the warnings of the prophets such as Jeremiah on the grounds that they were God's people, that God had promised that a king would forever live and reign on the throne of David. And that reign would never cease. And that Jerusalem, therefore, would never fall into an invading army. They didn't read the rest of Deuteronomy or listen to it. But Jerusalem did fall in the same way that Samaria and all of Israel was about to fall precisely because the people were not living as God's people. Because of this confusion, because of this perversion of their understanding of the law and of God and of sin, Amos calls the people to clear up their thinking. <clears throat> Follow along as I read verses 3 through 8. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in a thicket when it has no prey? Does it growl in its den when it has caught nothing? Does a bird swoop down to a trap on the ground when no bait is there? Does a trap spring up from the ground it has not caught anything, if it has not caught anything? When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, but not to... <coughs> Has not the Lord caused it? Surely the, surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Amos has called him to think Clearly, and he gives him some examples here. He wanted him to think logically. He says, if people go walking, it is by prior arrangement. If they don't agree, how can they go out walking together? A lion does not roar if he's about to seize his prey. Otherwise, he'll scare the prey off. But if, if he growls in his den, it is because he has caught it. A bird fell, <clears throat> falls into a trap only because someone has set that trap. And trumpets sound when danger threatens. And disaster comes because the Lord has sent it. There are three important details about this sequence. There is a progression from the lesser to the greater. From something that is not threatening, like going for a walk, to something that is threatening. The point is to this sequence is found in verse 6. A warning is never given unless disaster is imminent. But a warning has been given, and God is sending disaster. 
the first part of this concept is brought out in verses 7 and 8. And the second part is developed through the remaining of the chapter. A warning is never given unless disaster is imminent. But a warning has been given and God is sending disaster. The second thing to notice is Amos' emphasis on the warning. It is the warning God has given to Amos to speak to God's people. What Amos shows the people here is that where a warning is given, the attack will soon follow. But the God of grace does not send disaster without a warning first. And when you stop and think about it, isn't that the point, the whole point of preaching? If Pastor Walden or any pastor speaks with the authority of Scripture in the Bible, and to say that judgment is coming, you can be sure that judgment is coming. If the pastor warns you to repent of your sins, for day of judgment is coming, it will happen. If the preaching of God's word, the pastor says it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment, he speaks the truth. He doesn't preach to us just to, as a mere rebuke of our sin, but it is a warning so that we might avoid the wrath of God. Amos' reference to uh, the lion. It says, uh, does a lion roar in a thicket when it has no prey? That's a similar illustration that we find in the book of Hosea, where the same image occurs in chapter 5. Here God describes himself as a moth, and then later as a lion. He says he will come to Ephraim first as a moth, but if Ephraim will not listen, he will then come as a lion. This means that when we get out of God's will, he warns us about it gently at first, that we're off track, we're going down a rabbit hole, in a direction we should not go. So he comes into our lives like a moth, fluttering about, trying to distract us to get us back on target. However, if we do not respond to the gentle coaxing of the moth, then he comes as a lion, because he is determined that his people uh, should walk in the way that he's prescribed. Again, <clears throat> modern church today has a different view of God than the God of Scripture. God is not a God who is a pansy. He's not some milk toast walking around wringing his hands at the gates of heaven, seeing the sins of his people and not sure what to do. He has a plan, and he has warned us what he will do. He's not helpless. He's the lion God. 
He's the God who marches in front of his armies ready to judge his unholy people. The third thing to notice is that God sends disasters. I believe that through his word he is teaching us lessons of who he is. What is to come. And that he is in control of it all. He is sending us warnings through his word. He's teaching us that even greater day of judgment is coming. As Christians, we need to prepare our hearts and lives for even greater judgments yet to come. Many Christians today feel they're helping God get off the hot seat here. Uh, by blaming the devil for the horrible things that exist. They attempt to blame disasters on secondary causes, or <coughs> such as global warming, or blame it on the Russian-Ukraine war. Or at times they simply say, you know, it wasn't God, it was just an act of nature. But the Bible doesn't do this. The Bible claims there is a devil. We've already gone over that and studied a little bit of it. But the Bible also teaches that God controls the devil, devil and what he is allowed to do. And again, we've used the book of Job as an example where Satan had limits placed on him and what he was capable of doing to Job. Everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Later on it is written, it is in your hands, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Isaiah 45.7 says, God controls and sends disasters. It says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disasters. I, the Lord, do all these things. Let's take a look at the rest of the chapter. Verses 9 through 16. Proclaim to the fortress of Ashrod and to the fortress of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who store up in their fortress what they have plundered and looted. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. An enemy will over run your land, pull down your strongholds, and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd 
rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of ear, and a piece of ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued with only the head of a bed and a piece of fabric from a couch. Here, this is to and testify against the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for the sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter houses along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed, and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. When considering the rest of the chapter and its disaster, we can view it in light of two lessons, I think, that are being taught. The final disaster, as we see, or as I just read, will be thorough and total. It will consume the rulers. It will take out the army. It will do away with the priests. And it will destroy all the rich. It will be so terrible that others will hear of it and be frightened. The second lesson to learn is that as a people attempt to escape the disaster and judgment, there'll be nowhere to hide. In closing, again, we need to reflect and meditate on the words of God as spoken by the prophet Amos. One commentator writing about Amos said this, War, such as in Ukraine or Afghanistan, Drought, such as wildfires out west. Famine, we've already been threatened with a worldwide food shortage. Pestilence, such as COVID, monkeypox, and Ebola. Do not come by accident. They are sent as snares, as instruments of our destruction. Local and national calamities are not due merely to natural causes. They are not the consequences of human mistakes or faulty legislation or political folly or inadequate statesmanship. These and other matters may be contributory causes. God may use them to bring about his desired ends. But the final author of these calamities as well as all the good that exists in the world, is of the Lord. He has done it. And a, end of quote. So where can we hide from the Lord, the Lord God Almighty? There's nowhere now. We saw that in our own midst. People locked themselves in the house to avoid COVID. There's nowhere to hide. Above all, there will be no place in the day of final judgment when all kinds of people will run to the mountains and cry out, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand?
I think those are some of the lessons and ideas from this particular chapter of, or pre, uh, message that Amos brought to the people of Israel and how it applies to us. Any thoughts, or comments, questions? Yeah. I think right now he's referring to the the uh, Assyrians coming in and destroying. Yeah, but I think the application could be made to other places at other times. Anything else? Well, okay. Uh, Wade, could you close us in prayer then? Amen. Yeah.